In January 2016, Saudi Arabia brought out fighter jets, a full brass band, and a military procession to mark President Xi's arrival in Saudi Arabia. Smartly uniformed soldiers on horses led President Xi's sleek black limousine to a welcoming reception. Dozens of princes met him on a literal red carpet. Saudi Arabia was pulling out all the stops to mark what the Chinese call a comprehensive strategic partnership with Saudi Arabia. Although there aren't set terms for such partnerships, they generally include cooperation on a range of political and economic issues. Saudi Arabia isn't alone in seeking that level of commitment from China. Iran signed a comprehensive strategic partnership agreement with China the same month that Saudi Arabia did. The United Arab Emirates signed a comprehensive strategic partnership agreement with China in 2018. And when President Xi visited the UAE, he was met with similar fanfare, forces, a band, and military salutes. Egypt's greeting for President Xi was no different. They signed a comprehensive strategic partnership with China in 2014. China has signed broad strategic agreements throughout the Middle East. And in all, China has strategic partnerships or comprehensive strategic partnerships with more than 10 regional states. The partnerships are signed now, but they're not about now. These partnerships are about the future and Middle Eastern countries' desires to link their own futures more closely with China's. I'm your host, John Alterman, Senior Vice President, Spigner Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy, and Director of the Middle East Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. And this is the China in the Middle East podcast series. In this episode, we'll explore what's next for China in the Middle East. We'll take a look back at what we've covered in our previous episodes and what factors will affect the future of China in the Middle East. Since President Xi Jinping came to power in 2013, Beijing has used one phrase over and over to describe its vision for strategic growth. Community of common destiny. We should build a community of common destiny in Asia. Community of common destiny. China is trying to manage its peaceful rise onto the world stage as a global power. The community of common destiny, or the CCD, is one way to do that says Nadej Roland from the National Bureau of Asian Research. It's a vision not just for China's future, but for a global future, says Roland. This is about winning the hearts and minds of the non-Western world. So here it's really political and it's trying to undermine the principles of liberal democracy and this idea that is the basis of the liberal international order that if you have free individuals and free societies, it will bring prosperity and it would bring peace and stability. The Chinese way of doing things is very different from that. It stems more from the state and it's an authoritarian version of stability. Those values underpin much of China's foreign policy and its geopolitical strategies, particularly the Belt and Road Initiative or BRI. It's one of the physical tools of the community of common destiny, says Roland. The CCD ties countries to China's economy and to China's rise. According to Roland, the community of common destiny is 
part of China's strategy of political warfare, which seeks to use non-military means to achieve geopolitical objectives. China's military is small and weak compared to the United States, and the Chinese government doesn't use its military the way the U.S. government does. Political warfare helps China accomplish its international aims without firing a shot. Belt and Road is usually thought as an infrastructure-building project. Infrastructure-building is one of its pieces, but not all of them. It's got five links, policy coordination, uh, infrastructure-building, trade, financial integration, and people-to-people exchanges. So it's a much broader view than just building bridges and railways. And the end goal of that is to create a community of common destiny. So it is a political aim. It is a a political warfare instrument to achieve China's geopolitical aims. Those five links, policy coordination, infrastructure building, trade, financial integration, and people-to-people exchanges are everywhere China is, including the Middle East. And they're all part of China's political warfare strategy for managing its rise. All five are key elements that help tie the Middle East to China and the Chinese economy. This assures Beijing that the region has a vested interest in China's continued growth, says Roland. This framework also shapes China's presence and its future in the Middle East. And every foreign policy decision made is part of this framework. While China is still developing its strategy for the broader Middle East, this larger vision of its future still dictates its decisions and actions in the region. Economic ties shape most of the links within China's political warfare and CCD framework. And those ties have changed dramatically over the last decade and even more so over the last two. 20 years ago, China paid little attention to the Middle East, and the Middle East in turn was more focused on Western markets than Chinese ones. As China's energy needs have skyrocketed, the Middle East has increasingly looked to China to supplement shrinking Western demand. China's presence in the Middle East has spread far beyond the oil industry. As China has invested in the region, the region has increasingly hitched its wagon to China and a China-heavy future. A press conference from January 2020 about strengthening Chinese-Egyptian ties underscores the importance that Egypt places on China's future. We stressed on the intention of China and Egypt in promoting their ties and raising them to a higher level. China has suggested to raise the relationship from the current strategic partnership to what is known as a common destiny, and we are working on this. Two decades ago, This wasn't the case. But today, China looms large for Middle Eastern governments. And China doesn't loom large only for projects connected to the BRI and the energy industry. Chinese and Arab private companies are developing links as well. One surprising way this manifests itself is through crayfish, of all things. What Egypt once saw as an invasive species, it now sees as a profitable export. One company alone exports three to four tons of crayfish every day to China, and the industry creates about 50,000 jobs in Egypt. This Egyptian crayfish farmer in 2019 
praised how Chinese investors and private Chinese companies are helping grow the Egyptian economy. The Chinese were the first foreign investors to invest in the crayfish industry in Egypt. The business helps Egyptians make use of an invasive species and turn it into a driver for growth. It also brings profits to Chinese companies. Deborah Lair of the Paulson Institute says private Chinese companies have as much, if not more, potential for growth in the region as the Chinese public sector does. We see pilot projects starting in new energy vehicles, which tend to be run by Chinese private companies, and opportunities in fintech. New Chinese investment and new Chinese markets that create new Arab jobs have created a lot of excitement in the Middle East. Lair's dedicated her career to focusing on China's markets, and she founded a strategic consulting firm focused on China and the Middle East with a specialty on Egypt. To Lair, Egypt's an important laboratory for Sino-Arab ties. Here's Lair's prediction for China's economic relationship with Egypt. As we look ahead at the growing relationship between China and Egypt, I think that there is great potential but I think it will move slower than expectations. As China's economy is slowing down, it's going to reduce its lending, and it's going to be very strategic in where it places that. Although infrastructure lending may be slowing down, other sectors are growing. Where I see there's much more potential is in the private sector. If you take tourism, for example, we've seen 100% growth over the last two years of Chinese tourists. Chinese have said that number one on their bucket list before they die is to see the pyramids. Fintech, or financial technology, is another important aspect of how China is spreading into the economies of developing markets. Egypt has a wired population. They have over 100% mobile density. They have a very computer-savvy youth. They are tech-savvy youth. They have a large unbanked population, and it's basically a cash society. Chinese fintech companies provide technology-based financial solutions to Egypt, allowing them to penetrate the financial market in a way that traditional banks, and importantly, Western banks, have not been able to. Fintech is just one area where Chinese companies are more competitive in the region than Western companies. But in the long term, I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity, particularly if we start to see more and more Chinese companies establishing there, offering services, manufacturing, and using it as a base then to export back to China. China's rising labor costs are also pushing Chinese private companies to expand in the Middle East. Already in the textile area, for example, some of the Hong Kong companies have moved their textile factories out of China and put them in Egypt. And then they're using that as a base for exporting textiles, not only around the region, but also back to Asia. These companies can easily ship from the Middle East to Europe or the United States or even back to China. State-owned enterprises are bigger operations, but Lair thinks those ties will lag behind. My expectation of the developing relationship between China and Egypt is that it will grow very slowly in some of the areas where the state-owned enterprises will dominate, whether it's the major transportation projects or with construction. China's growth may be slowing, but it's still growing in a rapid clip. And as it does, China's becoming more and more entrenched in the Middle East. 
But as Chinese citizens, workers, and businesses spread throughout the region, China has a growing problem on its hands. It needs to figure out what hundreds of thousands of Chinese workers and billions of dollars in trade mean for China's security commitment to the Middle East. As we heard earlier in this series, China had to evacuate its citizens from Libya in 2011 and 2014 and from Yemen in 2015. It's committed to anti-piracy measures off the coast of Somalia, which sees large shipments of Chinese goods. And of course, China still needs large amounts of Middle Eastern oil. Chinese decision makers may not like it, but it's hard to escape the conclusion that China's security depends in part on stability in the Middle East. But the size of that part is up for debate. When we look at how China views its security priorities, it's important to remember the relative importance of the Middle East. China already has a lot on its plate. China's immediate neighborhood includes the South China Sea, Taiwan, and U.S. allies in Northeast Asia. China has trading partners in Southeast Asia and opportunities to grow influence in Central Asia, largely at the expense of Russia. And then there's China's great power competition with the United States. Here's Deborah Lair. As they look at the Middle East, one of their big concerns, I think, is the stability in the region, particularly as the Chinese are trying to diversify away from so much dependent on the United States and looking for new export markets. So I think there's huge potential with the Middle East and being an export market and potentially an investment market for China, but also it's limited by the potential unrest and by the fact that it's not clear that the region is going to continue to grow in the way that we might be expecting it to. When China looks at the Middle East, it's struggling to find the right balance. Their economic interests in the region are growing, so security in the region matters. What's less clear is what tools China should use both to advance its interests and also to protect them. While the United States frequently relied on traditional military means, China is emphasizing its economic prowess and placing less emphasis on its military. But increasingly, it's also turning to technology. China has been building a comprehensive surveillance system that closely tracks 1.4 billion people within China. And now, it's exporting that technology, allowing it to enforce security and build ties with governments without relying on a heavy military presence. Daniel Chow from Dahua Technology, a surveillance company, says in a BBC interview that Chinese surveillance technology can be used to protect its people and aid in security. Just like a weapon, if it is in the wrong hands, like in a, in a terrorist hands, it might do very bad things, right? But government do develop weapons. As regional governments continue to adopt China's technology to support their authoritarian models, Beijing is betting that technology will make China friends and also stave off instability. China sees both advancing China's security too. Economic development efforts like China's Belt and Road Initiative are meant to act similarly. It builds ties with governments and development means people will have less to be unhappy about. But the BRI may actually lead to more military involvement as the National Bureau of Asian Researchers Roland speculates. I do not 
think that BRI is primarily a military uh, endeavor, but it does facilitate or it may facilitate in the future uh, some military deployments that are meant to help the power projection of the Chinese Navy if it needs to come uh, and defend and support and protect China's interests. But I don't think that this is the main driver behind the Belt and Road, but it may and can and probably will facilitate those deployments in the future. The United States, on the other hand, is changing its traditional view of the region. It no longer wants to act as the principal security provider, as President Trump has made clear. The single greatest mistake our country made in its history was going in to the quicksand of the Middle East. We spent $8 trillion and lost thousands of lives. And by the way, the other side, we can talk about that, lost millions of lives. What did we do? So we're going to pull them out and we're pulling people out and we're trying to make good deals and we're going to bring our soldiers back home. But as the U.S. struggles to disengage from what the U.S. public views as a series of endless wars in the Middle East, it can't do so cleanly. This is CNN Breaking News. Breaking news, thousands of additional U.S. troops will be deployed to the Middle East following a dramatic escalation of hostilities between the U.S. and Iran. The United States deployed thousands of additional troops to the Middle East after the attack on Saudi oil facilities in September 2019, and it deployed still more to Iraq after the killing of Iranian Quds Force General Qasem Soleimani in January 2020. By comparison, the Syria withdrawal that grabbed headlines in October amounted to really a few dozen soldiers. After the president gave a sense that the United States was picking up stakes, its troop presence actually increased in the months following. The U.S. can't simply walk away from the Middle East, but its role is in flux. That creates challenges and opportunities for China. What of the U.S. role does China want to pick up? What parts of the U.S. role does China want to change? And how involved does China want to be in the region anyway? Will there be a clash of great powers in the Middle East? Most likely not. The United States and China often have complementary goals in the region. For example, they both want security. U.S.-China conflicts, if they occur, are much more likely to happen in East Asia and not in West Asia. But China is clearly on the move in the Middle East. Consider this news from December 2019. In other news, China, Russia and Iran are set to hold joint naval drills in the Gulf of Oman. They are aimed at deepening exchange and cooperation between their navies. This comes amid heightened tensions between the U.S. and Iran. For Middle Eastern governments, Sino-American competition has improved their bargaining position. Governments that felt that the United States either shut them out or took advantage of them now have more options. But China is clearly playing the game differently than the United States, and we're not seeing a return of rivalry like we did during the Cold War. China hasn't committed in the same way or to the same extent that the United States and other colonial powers before them had committed. For a region that has relied on outside security providers to aid in regional security for five centuries, There's a sense of excitement and opportunity now, in addition to a sense of fear and uncertainty. Remember when President Trump visited Saudi Arabia in May 2017? 
It was his first overseas trip as president. He received a welcome similar to the one that President Xi received. The same horses led a sleek black limousine to the same red carpet. A brass band played the U.S. national anthem. President Trump stiffly swayed during a welcoming ceremony as men around him danced with swords. Welcome ceremonies matter. Saudi Arabia, along with other Middle Eastern states, still roll out the red carpet for U.S. dignitaries. The United States is still a major priority. The only difference is, now, China is too. The future of the Middle East hasn't been decided yet. For every country in the region, relationships with both the United States and China are evolving. China's involvement in the Middle East seems destined to rise and the U.S. involvement seems destined to fall. But what each country's involvement will look like and how the country's strategies will relate to each other is far from clear. We're unlikely to see any country dominate the Middle East again like the United States did after the fall of the Soviet Union. The United States had no rival and every country was trying to be the U.S. friend. Those days are gone. But the tools that the United States will use, the tools that China will use, and how the Middle East will respond to the new environment hasn't been decided yet. I hope this mini-series has given you a better sense of the contexts, the stakes of all the players, and the tools they have at their disposal. This story is only just beginning. I'm your host, John Alterman, and this has been the China in the Middle East mini-series. Please tune back in for our regular series of Babel, Translating the Middle East, where I interview preeminent experts from around the world on drivers of change in the region. We'll start releasing new episodes in early March. Until then, please feel free to re-listen to previous episodes and send us your feedback. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts.